Hi listeners and welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's period podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. I'm your host, Dr. George Talaporis, and on today's episode, we're joined by three support coordinators to talk about what it takes to get great outcomes for people who have complex needs. This podcast is especially for support coordinators. So I'm handing over to my colleague and lead of Summer Foundation's upskill project, Linda Hughes. Linda has years of experience in support coordination, and I'm thrilled to have her host today's episode. Hi, I'm Linda Hughes, and I'm hosting Reasonable and Necessary today for Dr. George Teleporis. And I am here with two support coordinators, Bridget Kirkpatrick from uh, Create a Sense of Place in Newcastle and Marnie Bolsch from Trio Support Services in Mildura. Welcome, Bridget and Marnie, and thank you very much for coming along. Hi, Linda. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Linda. You're more than welcome. And look, I know you're really, really busy people, so I really appreciate your time, having the time out of your day just now to to have a chat to us about working with people with complex needs. So I thought we'd just start by just hearing a little bit about the work that you do and, uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit about the work you both of you do, please. Uh, yep, so it's Bridget. Um, so I work for myself as an independent support coordinator. Went out on my own about five years ago here in Newcastle, New South Wales, and never looked back. It's been great. My team slowly started to grow in over five years, and I think we have about seven uh, lovely support coordinators now. And yeah, it's just a really great job. It's We tend to get a lot of people, I guess, that we work with that have probably not really understood the support coordination role in the in the first place and possibly haven't got the best out of their plans. So we usually work with a lot of people um, to help them understand, I guess, what support coordination, what, what we do. And yeah, love my job. Awesome. Thanks. And Marnie, tell us a little bit about your work and you're in regional Victoria. So that yes. might be a little bit different as well. <laughs> I'm in Mildura in Victoria. So it's right up in the northwest. Um, I work for a provider named Trio Support Services, which was an existing disability service provider uh, working with people who who had state funding at the time, So, um, which has transitioned into what we now know as core supports in, in the NDIS. Uh, but when we were registering and we heard about support coordination and recognised that essentially it was quite similar to the work I was already doing for Trio, so we chose to register for that as well. And I've been providing that service since we had our first local people roll onto the NDIS, which was a year or two before NDIS officially rolled out in Mildura. We were we were the last area in Victoria. Rollout wasn't until January 2019 here. But I had my first support coordination participant start with me in April 2017. So I've been a support coordinator for about three and a half years and it's great. I wouldn't go back to any other job. (laughs) 
so that's really interesting because, Bridget, you're in Newcastle, whereas I am as well, and we were the launch site of the NDIS. So we've had support coordination since 2013, haven't we? We have, and it has been an interesting ride. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, that's actually what prompted me to go out on my own because I was um, working for a big organisation who, uh, you know, transitioned over to the NDIS from their state funding and probably didn't understand what support coordination was meant to be. So we're um, trying to get me to do some pretty unethical things. Um, so hence going out by myself. So I think it was very unknown back then, well, for some, what support coordination was meant to be, how it was meant to look. And I think even the NDIA weren't exactly clear with their communication. I think we're still waiting on a framework, aren't we? I believe so, yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. What happened to that framework? I was hearing about that years ago. Oh, I know, I know. Yeah, seven years in the making. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it'll my be own. Great. <laughs> yes, yes. So you're both support coordinators who work with people who've got complex needs, and we hear that term a lot. So, what does working with a person with complex needs mean to you? Um, I'll uh, jump in if you like. Yep, Marnie. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess. Uh, as I mentioned, I had I picked up the early entrance to the NDIS here in Mildura, which were the people who were waiting for state-based funding or, or waiting for increases in their state-based funding. So they tended to be the people who had the more complex needs, to use that term, and, and they still are. So I still have my existing participants that I've had the whole time. So I guess a lot of them are people who are learning what it's like to, to access the level of support that they, I guess, should be entitled to, that, but previously they've never been able to. There's never been enough funding for that in the past. I'm not sure what, what the New South Wales funding system was like, but the Victorian one was, was quite limited. Um, uh, ours is the same as well, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been quite a journey for those people and, and still learning new things, new, new supports to access every day. And an additional issue here is is the thin market. There's not nearly as many support providers of every kind that is funded by the NDIS as what we need. So I'm not sure how you guys go with that up there in Newcastle. Um, We've got a saturation of providers being the trial site Um, and I think the issue is everyone's trying to be everything to everyone and doing every single type of support instead of doing what they're good at or I said my sort of thing is be the best at what you do, not the biggest. And I think in Newcastle, and I don't know what you think, Linda, but um, everyone's just doing everything. Everyone's doing SIL, everyone's doing core supports, everyone's doing support coordination. So it's very hard to, you know, wade through the sea of, of registered providers up here. Um, to actually find one that's doing a good job or what you what you need done or is the right fit for the person. So, yeah, even though there's kind of a lot of choice, it's kind of not because everyone's just doing the same thing. But I guess in regards to probably complex needs and, you know, I guess, the yeah, it is a, definitely a term that gets thrown around and um, I'm not sure how a lot of people define it. But I guess for me and how I see it is usually when there's, I mean, everyone has more than one thing going on, I guess, but um, it might be an array of different um, issues, challenges, dual diagnosis, triple quadruple, like a whole range of different disabilities. And then there might be, um, like the justice system might be involved or, you know, um, multiple hospital admissions and I guess that sort of thing. I think if I think of a gentleman that I've been supporting 
pretty since I went out on my own. And he lives with um, an intellectual disability from a um, traumatic birth. Um, he then developed paranoid schizophrenia in his 20s and then due to that medication, he's now in his 40s, he's developed Parkinson's. I guess those sort of diagnoses in itself make him a bit more complex because of then the different types of supports that he needs and sometimes it's being trying to, to work out, which you know, can never quite work out, is um, where he's at at that time. So he, he might freeze, his body might freeze because of Parkinson's, but it actually also might be his mental health that he's freezing. Um, and then it might be the medications that are causing that. And then obviously having um, an intellectual disability is, is making that hard for him to, uh, I guess, understand what's going on with his body and then understanding why at times he could run around the block and then at times he can't sort of get out of bed. And I think then what we've got a really great team around him, um, a really good person-centred, positive team from all different independent organisations. So he's residing in a cell at the moment but then has external staff, has an OT speech, behavior, uh, psychologist that are all from different places and then obviously support coordinator myself from a different place. And it's great. Everyone works really well as a team but he has a lot of hospital admissions. We also work closely with a neurologist and a psychiatrist and I guess the language around people trying, I guess, trying to educate um, other, I guess, medical professions as well about how to, to work with someone like him and help him understand and speak to him, I guess, in a in a way that is really respectful and then have them be able to understand how he tr- communicates so then they can understand his needs. So with uh, multiple hospital admissions, they might be due to falling or it might be due to his mental health. So it just it can be very different. Um, and I guess in, you know, in the mental health wards, getting them to understand how he communicates. And I think, I don't, I guess I don't see him as complex, but other people do. And I, I guess bring it back to how does he communicate and how can he help people understand what it is that he's trying to say or, you know, express his needs. So I think all that probably makes someone quite, um, have complex needs if you want to define it that way. Like, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Bridget, because I think sometimes it's the systems, like and there's almost demarcation lines between housing or health or criminal justice or education. So it's sort of there, that's sort of almost where the complexity comes. And it sounds like mm. you're doing some capacity building within other systems to support, in, so this man is supported well. Yes. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I do think you're right. It's the other things, external things that make someone complex. Or, or seen as complex, um, not necessarily the person themselves. Yeah. 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 So what strategies, hey, Marnie, would, would you, so you have for navigating complex, um, for helping people navigate complex systems? Have you got some strategies or some learnings that you've got from, um, yeah, those tricky, those tricky demarcation lines perhaps is what we could call them? <laughs> I think first and foremost is having a great team in place, like Bridget mentioned for the gentleman she just described. So we are lucky in Mildura to have a number of well-skilled allied health professionals who are working well in the NDIS space. And I guess I have, uh, for a lot of my participants, consistent teams made up of those people around them. Um, again, lucky, I guess, that most of my participants were early entrants and and got in quickly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, definitely that has been has been the game changer um, in my experience of communicating with other stakeholders, hospitals, you know, justice system, child protection system, housing, all of those to get the best outcomes 
or the participants. Yeah, it's kind of like a bit of a, a maze sometimes sort of navigating through there, but just um, kind of just sort of I think sometimes it's just like knocking on doors, do you think, or ha- have you got some strategies, Bridget, as well, like for sort of finding your way through those sis- other systems or? Um, oh, you know, sometimes it's kind of luck of the draw who you get, for example, in the hospital ward. <laughs> um, sometimes you can have amazing people that really understand and, are, and have the patience to really take the time to get to know someone as much as they can in that sort of, I guess, space, but um, listen to how someone communicates and take note of that. But I guess sometimes in those environments, it's so fast paced and people are in and out, they don't necessarily have that time or to do that. So it's just, yeah, I find it really tricky with police as well, I guess, with the justice system and stuff. I, I think it's not very, I guess, set up and whether there's much training around people with a disability, especially people with, um, I guess, an intellectual disability and um, how things might present, um, what might be seen as a aggression, for example, or a challenging behaviour really might not be. So I think there's just, yeah, there's lots of barriers there, strategies. It's just really trying to educate, I think, really just trying to help them understand from the person's view the best you can. But it's really hard because I, I find one of the biggest challenges is as soon as people know that you've got something to do with the NDIS, um, and, and you're a support coordinator, everyone seems to think you work for the NDIS and you have all this access to all these things and you can make decisions about all these things and funding and all this sort of stuff and it <laughs> gets really um, difficult to, you know, try and get people to even just understand your own role as a part, uh, you know, and then on top of all this other stuff. So mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah, yeah, I think I've experienced that as well. It's like you're the one with the money. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So what skills do you reckon you've developed along the way or what have you learned along the way working with people with complex needs? I think the main thing is, um, and, you know, probably a lot of us go into this role of support quarter anyway with certain values and skills and I'd say one of them is is listening. I think one of, that's probably the biggest skill to have and if you don't have it you'll, you'll, and if you stick as a support coordinator you will go far if you do listen. Because it's all, it's just, it doesn't matter how complex someone is or how little support someone might need. You just need to listen to what it is that they need and listen to what it is that um, they might need change in their life or help change in their life or what isn't going right, the things that are going really right, you know, what what is it that they actually want to do, what their dreams are. So it's just, I think the biggest one's listening, really. And then, then understanding the NDIS, the processes, the funding to try and then help that align with what it is that they need. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Listening is definitely the the first thing we need to do and I guess try and put ourselves in the the participant or the family's shoes so that we can try and, I'm going to say, advocate even though the NDIS will tell you that support coordinators can't be at home. What do you have to say? We're not advocates, are we? No. With a little little A or maybe (laughs) But... Certainly, yeah, to, to assist the participant and the family to, to negotiate for, for what they need to meet their needs and try and, you know, empower them, capacity build them to start learning some of those skills and take some of those responsibilities on themselves where possible. Yeah, and I think another really important skill on the other side is, I guess, about compassion fatigue and as a support coordinator, again, you're probably in the field because you want to help people or you want to try and make a difference or whatever it may be. And you can get really 
some people that you work with are extremely vulnerable and going through some pretty hard times. So as a person, sometimes it's you can take that in. So it's really important, I think, to obviously build up your resilience, but realize that you you can't be everything to everyone and try and make your expectations of what you can and cannot do really clear, but also for your own self to get supervision and self-care, take care of yourself so you don't burn out so you can continue to support people. And I think that's really important in support coordination because sometimes you can do the best job in the world and you can move heaven and earth and it's still not going to be, you know, what someone wanted or you, you can't do what it is that they wanted or um, and that in itself can, can be really challenging as well. So I think it's just really important to, yeah, make sure that you look after yourself, you have um, a team around you that supports you and realize that yeah, I think that you don't need to know everything <laughs> because it's an ever-changing system and you can always go and find answers and and stuff like that so I find um I think some support coordinators give people answers because they think they just they need to give an answer but they're not necessarily the correct answer because they haven't felt like it's okay to say hey I don't know that but let me find out so I think yeah that just that whole just looking after yourself you know staying within your role um trying to stay professional and yeah looking after yourself which in turn you know you then better support the people that you are working with yeah so I'm like I know this you know we often you know as as a support coordinator myself as well I've come across you know these barriers that which just you know could be impenetrable they really are wicked problems you know you know around housing and you know this sort of thing problems that are just not easily solved or really hard to solve so it's sort of working through those as well I suppose so you got any thoughts about that at all once again I think Bridget you're really right like that sort of self-care is really important so an understanding I suppose that we're working in in a very imperfect system Mm. (laughs) yeah Um, We've been trying to set up a community of care, a community of practice, I can never get the term right, (laughs) here in Mildura for the support coordinators working locally so that we're all uh, familiar to each other and feel like there's a a big group that we can reach out to to talk about issues and get advice from. Um, So we've really been promoting, you know, working together, you know, we're, we're all trying to achieve one common goal, which is to provide the best outcomes or assist participants to get the best outcomes. So we've been, pre-COVID, we were meeting once a month in a local disability providers building. Since we've been working from home, we've been attempting some Zoom sessions, which have been less successful than the face-to-face sessions. Uh, But we we do have an email list and hopefully we all understand that we can reach out and, and ask each other questions or get support at any time. Well, that's a really good idea. And you do know about the uh, community of practice, the upskill community of practice with Summer Foundation, don't you? You should I join. Have <laughs> yes, I should join. <laughs> no, it's, a, it, it's an opportunity for people to ask questions and get together and share out information around support coordination as well. And it's an online thing. It's on, on Slack. It's an online platform. So you can just sort of do it at any time that suits you. So. Just thought I'd mention that when you're talking about community yeah. of practice. <laughs> so when we are talking about people with uh, complex needs and we're just sort of thinking about the role of family and, inform- and informal support for people with complex needs, how, how important is it for you to work with the family and the person to get the best outcome? 
How do you sort of work that out? Well, for my participants, it's just uh, I worked out that they each have a family member or a guardian of some kind who is the primary contact. So I don't really have any people I work with who, you know, where the participant lives independently or or would be the primary contact for coordinating their supports. Uh, so Bridget might have some better information for you on that one. But certainly for my people working with the family and or guardians has been very important. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, I, I, I probably read the question wrong, but that's just the role of family and, and ha- working with them, I suppose, is more the question, you know, how, how do you sort of integrate the role of family and the person? Bridget, mm-hmm. how do you? Um, look, I, it can be um, family dynamics can be really interesting to, to work with and I work with a bunch of different people. Some have no informal support who live independently. Um, some people only have paid support and then there's other people that have great supportive families and then there's some people that have what might be perceived as a great supportive family, but the person may be having their decisions taken out of their hands. So they can be, depending on the situation, can be when you get a really supportive family, it's just such a great space to work in because everyone's on the same page. Because when you have this really supportive informal supports around and family members, they can then help educate the, you know, the support workers and the therapists and all that about how to best support their their loved one which is really really great they play such a vital role and I guess then you you got that those situations when perhaps you know the person um, can be more independent but the family member may without realizing or realizing maybe kind of stopping that because they're so protective of them and so it's been out of them I guess have those conversations just about you know how do we build independent decision making for someone who definitely has the capability of, of being able to make you know um, decisions about their daily life. Um, not sure if that's where you're sort of going, but they definitely play a very, very important role. Yeah, yeah. No, I think family, like when there's informal supports around, you absolutely work with them because, you know, when there's family around because it's, it's sort of, you know, can, it's more, the more people around a person who are there for freely given relationships, it's, mm. you know, usually the better yeah. uh, for the person. Would you say yeah. so as well, Marnie, or...? Yes, definitely. I've had some great outcomes with some of my participants because of of the level involvement that has happened with the family from the therapy team and from myself and from everyone involved, you know, schools and those sort of things. I I don't think, yeah, it it just wouldn't be possible to get the same sort of outcomes if if you weren't able to all work together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what would I'm just going to ask you if you if you want to share a challenging experience without identifying a person but you know I'm just could you share a challenging experience that you've had and what did you learn I'm just trying to think of um I've had a few challenging experiences well my participants had a few challenging experiences during our lockdown period so quite a few people seem to display I guess what we'd call behaviours of concern or challenging behaviours I guess as a result of not understanding what was going on in the world, not being able to access their programs and different activities that they used to be able to and not knowing how to to process that or to communicate their feelings Mm -hmm. with others. There has been a lot of work needed with behaviour support specialists during this time and and that is an area that we have a very thin market for here in Mildura. So that can be quite challenging. And, and also it's obviously a 
very separate category in an NDIS plan. So getting a review of a plan to obtain that support for a person who didn't already have it in their plan is, mm. um, well, for one person in particular, I'm still trying to get that in there for them so they can get oh, the support no. they need. So, yeah, mm. I was, was going to ask how COVID has affected your work <laughs> as well. So, yeah, so, yeah, that, oh, gosh, I mean, I can just, I don't think we could all, any of us could have thought at this time last year what's, you know, that we're going to be in lockdown or as you are in Mildura Oh, not in, you're not in complete lockdown now, but you, we've experienced really, really dropping, you know, a real change in our social lives because of COVID. Uh, everyone has, mm-hmm. but particularly in Victoria more recently. So it's, it's sort of like we couldn't have predicted this. So it's obviously affected, I think most of us, you know, affected our work profoundly as well. So, yeah, Bridget, would you have you had much effect from COVID or...? Um, yeah, look, I think your people you're working with. definitely um, what you were saying too, Marnie, with behaviour support um, and with COVID and people not understanding what's happening. And I've, I've found, and I find this a lot anyway, but with a lot of SIL providers um, and people living in, you know, your traditional group homes and stuff that there isn't, I guess, communication tools and visuals or whatever it might be that supports the person, um, the individual person, and then the, the, the group home as a whole about how to, even in a normal environment, how to, you know, what's happening with your day. And then I'm finding with COVID kind of the same thing, like there's no routine at all. And, but there's no, there's no sort of helping people understand what's sort of going on. So people that are suddenly in lockdown or in houses and stuff like that. And like you're saying, money having, you know, these challenging behaviors which really you know it's just someone saying I'm not happy because you know why am I in a house that I can't leave so I'm finding that is a really difficult space even pre-COVID just about I guess people working with other providers and support workers about that like about the importance of 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 all of that if you're going to have a group of people together in a home (laughs) you know it just it's it's just really important to get that stuff in there right and I think like the other you know, if we stick on housing, like the other biggest thing is like there's all this talk about innovative housing models and like there's nothing out there, really. <laughs> um, so you can try and try and try, but, you know, if you can only get so far because if you can't find anything or no one's willing to think outside the box or do something different, it's very, very hard. So I think that's sort of, yeah, one of the biggest struggles here and I've, I've heard that housing sort of a pretty big struggle around the country. Yeah. Yes, that is another area that's limited um, housing, like SIL and SDA housing here in Mildura. We do have one or two providers or one one predominant provider in that area. And I did look into actually Penny from the Summer Foundation put me on to a couple of builders who might be interested in coming up this way, but we didn't quite get to that stage that the, the lady that I was looking for that for was in that group who was experiencing a difficult time during COVID and she's now living in one of the existing properties because it was an emergency at the time. But it would be interesting to to explore some more innovative design and more, you know, custom-built type options down the track. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really interesting area because, I mean, certainly, Bridget, you'd know as well where we are, there's like there's there's been a lot of building of, you know, um, five resident group homes, which is, most people, it's not their choice that, you know, that They've, they've not got the choice of the other four housemates and, right. and all those things. And and in, invariably it's never the best outcomes for people. Mm. Sometimes I think the other thing I was just thinking, 
um, Marnie, we're sort of working in sometimes in really crisis situations where, you know, someone needs emergency housing or there's you need a quick fix for something as well. So that's often, you know, some challenges that we experience is juggling everything very quickly to sort of find a, an okay solution for the person. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I should say that this provider has been amazing. They, they really stepped up and saved the day, no doubt. And it just would have been good to have. So we'd actually submitted... I don't know if you want this much detail, but we'd actually yeah, submitted good, good. an SDA application for this lady back in February and we're still awaiting NDA approval of that. So she's actually living now, has been for two months now, living in an SDA home that, that the provider should be eligible for SDA funding for her but is not receiving it because we're still waiting for that application to be approved. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Well, we could do a whole other podcast on that. <laughs> <laughs> Come back soon and we'll, just, we'll talk more. So definitely shout out to that provider. Yeah. <laughs> the, the amazing. Yeah. yeah. And that's it, Linda. I think what you were saying is about, you know, I think the whole housing thing is so backwards because it's it becomes a placement as opposed to a place to call home and someone's home. And then, you know, within that home, you obviously you don't choose your flatmate, but you also don't choose your staff and then your staff leave and then you get a turnover of staff and you get a new house manager and you get this and everything's so reliant on this one organisation. And then if that organisation falls or gets taken over or decides they don't want to do SIL anymore, then that person effectively becomes homeless and then or they're just given to another organisation that takes them over without it being, you know, looked upon about, okay, well, is this the right environment? But for this person but then sometimes you're, you're stuck because you don't have anywhere else for that person to go yeah exactly so and I think this is I think what you sort of our housing solutions often aren't the are not person-centered they, 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 we found the solution before we even found the person quite often yeah mm. or we're trying to put in the person into a, a sort of a situation that's not quite right to fit them mm. so can I just finish off can you tell me about one of your wins one of the things where you've gone yes <laughs> I one of my wins it probably goes back to the gentleman I was spoke about earlier for years the NDIA just would not accept that he needed more support that they were providing they just wouldn't they just wouldn't listen it took years it took um, numerous hospital admissions it took numerous different housing options for him to show what doesn't work. It took an extreme running out of support coordination funding every single year because they just couldn't understand that this person needed more support than what they were getting, apart from the fact that there's probably 13 specialists involved and then you got all your NDIS providers. So the biggest win of, of recent was the recent plan review, even though we've now had three light touch reviews and we're about to have another one, but the recent plan actually reflects what it is that he needs. They've listened. Like they finally, it took a lot. It took formal complaints. It took review of reviewable decisions. It took change of circumstances. It took uh, took almost going to the AAT. It took it everything. It took, and unfortunately, um, a really bad situation to to happen, which has had a positive outcome because he's now receiving the support that he needs and it's sort of like I don't know how you both feel but sometimes you can get a planner that clearly has no experience doesn't know how to read a report and therefore makes really stupid decisions and we finally you know got someone that 
read the reports and understood them and knew how to apply that to funding and actually took note of hospital admissions and reports and case notes and all that sort of stuff. So that was a win. Well done. Oh, that's awesome. Great. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well done. Marnie, how about you? Can you tell um, us about one of your recent wins? I've got, I guess, probably more of a, a long-term win. So one of my participants, a young man in his early 20s, received his NDIS plan nearly three years ago now. Uh, I didn't know him prior to that, but he was already linked in with a day program and some other supports through the state-based funding. But there wasn't a lot of meeting or working together and he, you know, didn't have access to therapists because that wasn't really part of the the state-based funding system. But when he transitioned to NDIS, over time we were able to get a good team in place with speech and OT to work together with his day program and his other social support providers. Uh, He has a therapy assistant who works really well with him and he's made a lot of progress he's doing really well with his day programs he he does ADE as well he does two or three days a week of of work and his goal from when I first saw his first NDIS plan was to run his own gardening business and he's now with his with his ADE he is I guess you could say running he's um teaching other new people to that so he was involved in setting up that program and he's teaching other new people as they join that program what to do what the policies and procedures are and how to do the job so one day realistically he might be able to run his own gardening that's awesome that's that is another win and that's a (laughs) long-term win isn't it that's just sort of his life is turning around and being what it needs to be for him Hmm. so that's that's an awesome win I'm just going to wrap it up now. Thank you very, very much to both of you for the time today and just sharing those experiences. We've just got a really great podcast here, I think. So I really appreciate both of your time and sharing and, yeah, just thinking about how how we do our work, particularly when we're working with people with complex needs. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary brought to you by the Summer Foundation. Check out our Facebook page for previous podcasts and transcripts. We love hearing from you, so please leave your comments and suggestions for future episodes. And until next time, stay well and reasonable.